0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for SupChina access, and you'll get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extralegal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming today from Seattle, Washington. Alas, Jeremy Goldcorn was unable to join me for this jaunt to the Pacific Northwest. Today I'm honored to have as my guest Ambassador Gary Locke, who was governor of the state of Washington from 1997 until early 2005, was appointed Secretary of Commerce during the first Obama administration, and, most importantly for you cynical listeners, served as U.S. Ambassador in Beijing from August of 2011 until March 2014. He's now advisor to the law firm Davis Wright Tremaine DWT here in Seattle. Ambassador Locke, welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for taking the time.
1: My pleasure to be with you.
0: So as anyone familiar with the recent political history of China can attest, your time as ambassador was an incredibly eventful time, uh, with certain important personages showing up at the embassy uh, and at one of our consulates, uh, with a major change uh, in the international environment that made Beijing deeply insecure uh, in part because of a new policy initiative coming out of the Obama State Department. Uh, there was the Snowden revelations. There was a major and I think quite successful pushes uh, on things like uh, cyber espionage and, and, and much more. It was a dramatic tenure, and I'd like to talk about all of that. But first, let's start with before you were ambassador and even with your life before public office. How did China figure into your life, if at all, when you were growing up and, and going to school?
1: Actually, uh, uh, in some ways, I grew up in the 50s and the early 60s. It was a, kind of a, a strange time. Uh, grew up in a neighborhood of immigrant kids. Uh, grew up in a predominantly Italian neighborhood, but a mm. lot of kids moving in uh, from families uh, of Filipino, Japanese, Chinese ancestry, uh, Native Americans. And uh, it was a time in which I think uh, everybody was talking about the melting pot all becoming one uh, and in some ways, we were growing up and taught by our teachers in our public schools to reject our native cultures mm, and our correct. customs under this theory of a malt, uh, melting pot, not of plurality and diversity, but of becoming you know, almost monocultural. Uh, we had a third grade teacher that would ask us what we had for breakfast every morning. And if it wasn't the traditional ham and eggs American breakfast, we had our hands slapped with a ruler. Wow! So in many ways, we were kind of we were almost being punished for having shifan or juk for breakfast uh, or you know miso soup or any of the other native dishes which, which were probably a lot more healthy than just ham and eggs and, <laughs> and pancakes i mean i remember my mom uh, made a, a a variation of oatmeal with meat and lots of vegetables in it for breakfast so uh, uh, so in in many ways i grew up kind of rejecting the 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 culture and the um, customs of our family, and I, I, I regret that it was so tumultuous for my parents, and I, I regret how much pain I caused them. Yeah. I remember many of their customs, though. Uh, every... Uh, uh, major holiday, mom and dad were always sending money back to the family village. We always had these relatives coming from China who uh, who would stay with us for extended periods of time. Uh, my mom's brothers and their families would sometimes stay with us for a year, year and a half until they got settled. Wow. Um, but we were always sending money back to the family village and these so-called distant uncles visiting and staying with us for a while and da- dad always trying to get them a job. And so uh, that's – and our whole family clan always got together, grandpa, all my aunts and uncles and things like that. And so um, that was a great, great time. I did not really fully appreciate China and really did not have an understanding of China until I was a state legislator Hmm. and went on a trade mission, uh, educational uh, exchange trade mission uh, when uh, in the late uh, 1980s. A year right after Tiananmen Square, hmm. and uh, was just floored by how just how rugged and primitive right. China was. It was just at a time in which they were beginning to open up, massive construction all over. But I was just floored by. I mean, for instance, we we came into Shanghai. Uh, that was the first city from the airport. We rode in a bus to the hotel. It was a very nondescript hotel, maybe about seven stories high. Uh, but at night, I was just floored by – the the bus did not turn on its lights. Uh, right. they, they must have thought somehow that the, if they turned on the lights, it would drain the battery or something like that. And maybe they didn't have a good alternator system to generate electricity for the bus. But just everywhere, there were – Tens of thousands of bicycles all over. I was afraid that the bus was going to run people over. But people were riding on their bicycles late at night with uh, other people riding, uh, sitting on the handlebars, you know, like young couples out on dates. Um, during the daytime, people were squatting in the middle of the street, repairing the street using hand tools as right. trucks were whizzing by. I was afraid that they'd get hit by uh, by a bus or a, or a truck. Uh, people pulling these carts uh, just laden with uh, equipment and supplies and pulling these carts, uh, rickety uh, wheels, uh, rickety carts uphill. And I was just so floored by just how medieval it felt. Well, (laughs) in some ways, how tough life was for the people of China. And it made me very proud of my Chinese ancestry, but also somewhat resentful and angry at the um, colonization uh, of China during the Opium War uh, and even some of the policies of the last emperors uh, of China, who uh, turned inward and did not allow China to modernize, and I really felt bad for just how backward China was, and just what the tough con- just the tough conditions that people were living under. Right. A sense of hurt, anger, but also pride in how they were persevering and trying to move forward.
0: You went on to become the executive for King's County, uh, which is the county where Seattle is, uh, and in that capacity, I imagine you must have had some relations with with China as well, sister cities and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, we uh, I, I was able as county executive to take a trip uh, trade mission uh, to uh, Taiwan and to the mainland mm-hmm. and to see the contrast in in um, the economy, the standard of living, and uh, really. Was ho- from that, wanting more for China and hoping uh, for China's success in modernizing and raising the standard of living for its people.
0: That's right. I mean, Taiwan does that to a lot of people. I mean, you, you see what is possible. You see, first of all, that it's not just something inherently cultural that holds China back, right? Because you know, here are these Chinese people living very modern uh, and democratic lives as well. All right? Your stint as governor was quite long and One of the things that I've really noticed when I'm traveling outside of the Beltway is that attitudes are very different at the state level. There's still a lot that can be done sort of at the state level with China, and you had a lot of hands-on experience with that. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about things that the state of Washington was doing uh, with China during your tenure as governor?
1: Well, when I came in uh, as governor in uh, January of of 97, uh, our dominant trading partner. Our major trading partner was Japan. And of course, that was the major trading partner with the United States at the time. Uh, it was also a time in which people were beginning to look more to China for opportunities and expansion of trade and culture and, and um, economic uh, and political relations. And um, uh, uh, Japan was also very, very sensitive to that notion. There was a phrase at that time called uh, uh, Japan Passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people mm-hmm. were passing over Japan and going straight to China. So shortly after I was elected governor, uh, there was a lot of fanfare in China. <laughs> There's a lot of celebration in the old family v- uh, village too, I which you have is pictures to- Toisan, is that It's right? in Toisan, yeah. which is in Guangdong Province. Uh, it's a village um, or Toisan area. Uh, in Mandarin, it's called Taishan, uh, halfway between uh, Guangzhou, the old city of call, previously called Canton, and 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 Hong Kong. It's a, it's the area in which most of the early Chinese. Uh, it's it's a source of the early immigration of Chinese to America. It's the area where the Chinese came from uh, to build the railroads, mm-hmm. uh, to work in the lumber camps, the mm-hmm. gold mines, the canneries. Um, it's the dialect, uh, uh, the Toisan, the Taishan dialect is, is very, very different from Cantonese, the Hong Kong dialect, or, or, uh, or of Guangzhou, or... Um uh, or of Mandarin, very it's different still from quite, Mandarin.
0: Widely spoken, actually m- spoken more in the United States and Chinatowns than. It well, is it, in...
1: Well, that was the dominant uh, dialect of the Chinatowns of San Francisco, New York, uh, uh, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, even Vancouver, British Columbia, because that was the, the dialect of of those early immigrants in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. And uh, I always say that if if Mandarin is French. Cantonese is Italian, and Toysanese is like Russian. I mean, it's so <laughs> different. radically different and My very God. guttural. Anyway, um, at the end of that first year, uh, we took our first trade mission. And as, as I said, the people were very Japan was very sensitive about being overlooked. Uh, so we had to go to Japan first. It was right. our number one trading partner. Uh, spent a few days there. But the real purpose of the trade mission was to go to China to establish those contacts and um, to promote Washington state products, to further develop our sister state relationship with the province of Sichuan. We were one of the first states to have a sister state relationship with China after uh, President Carter uh, reestablished diplomatic relations in uh, uh, 1979, right. and uh, so we wanted to build on that, and it was a great, great trip. We were just mobbed by the press. I can imagine. Yeah, uh, there was so much uh, notoriety about my being elected uh, governor—the first Asian American governor outside of Hawaii, uh, you know, on the mainland—the first Chinese American in U.S. history—and that was just so strange. I mean, how could a person of color, a minority person, um, be elected to a, such a high position in the United States? And so it was—we uh, were greeted with a lot of press and fanfare. Uh was able to meet with uh, the president of China, uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, at the time. And um, the State Department said, there's no way that he's going to meet with a governor. <laughs> uh, but we made the request, and, and it was granted, and it was a great time. But at the end of the trade mission, my brothers and sisters and mom and dad met me in Hong Kong. On the very last day of the trade mission, and the next day on a Saturday, we took the hydrofoil from Hong Kong Island uh, past Macau up the Pearl River back to the family village, mm. and that was an incredibly emotional trip for Mom and Dad, who had not been back to the family village in 50 years and one month since wow. their wedding, and uh, reliving all the stories of them growing up and sharing that. And when we got to the family village or got to the town, um, we were just mobbed by hundreds of reporters ticker tape parades, uh, kids lining the streets with pom-poms, and we went back to the family village. It was like stepping back into the 1800s.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I, I, you really need to write a memoir about this. <laughs> it,
1: it's a, it'll be phenomenal. Let me just say about the family village. Yeah. When I said it was like stepping back into the 1800s, I, I meant it. It's a village where my father and grandfather and great-grandfather were born. Uh, my dad left uh, when he was about 12 or 13 See, grandfather actually came to the United States in the late 1800s to work as a houseboy, a servant boy for a family in the state capitol, sweeping floors, washing dishes, you know, doing household chores in exchange for English lessons. Here in Washington. Here in Washington State. And then as he grew up, he moved to Seattle um, and worked as a a cook at one of the major hospitals of Seattle. And the founder of that hospital encouraged Grandpa. uh, And then Grandpa, uh, during that period of time, went back to China, got married, had a family. So my father and aunts and uncles were born in China. But then grandfather came back to the United States to continue working in the hospital, sending money back uh to the family in the family village and the doctor uh, the head of the hospital encouraged grandpa to go back and bring the whole family over so he did that so my dad came over when he was 12 or 13 years old and then uh, um dad served in the united states army joined the army just before the outbreak of world war ii it was part mm. of the normandy invasion wow. part of the 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 race to berlin uh secret orders under general Patton, uh and was involved in some of the most his unit was involved in some of the most vicious battles on the way to Berlin, encountering the German resistance. Uh, after the war was over, he met. He went back to Hong Kong, met my mom, they got married and brought her back to Seattle. And so all of us kids were born in Seattle. But when we went back to the family village, it was like stepping back into the 1800s. They they cook using wood kindling in the back, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some coal briquettes here and there, one light bulb hanging from the ceiling of every room. Not all the rooms had had windows or glass that was in place. Uh, sort of oil papers. They, they, oil. they use. Uh, they pump water from uh, uh, there's uh, from a well, but the, wa- the it, there's a pump in the, almost off the living room in in the house. Uh, with a little basin uh, depression in the floor to catch the water, and then the wastewater goes out to the sidewalk right outside the home. And the homes are really tightly spaced with a little narrow sidewalk or walkway in between, but with deep gutters where mm-hmm. the wastewater flows. No toilets. There's an outhouse about 150 yards away at wow. the edge of the village, uh, and they they you know they wash clothes by hand and do everything by hand. Um, This is 1998. This was 1997. 97, okay. And um, they did install, in honor of our visit, a toilet, but the toilet went straight out to the sidewalk, so (laughs) nobody used that. Uh, And they did bring in a garden hose or a garden pipe, a galvanized pipe for water, uh, with a garden spigot at the end into that living room area. But uh, that was it
0: makes you wonder what they had done with all the remittances that had been sent back.
1: Well, just taking care of the home, Uh, taking care of the home because it uh, was, you know, it's been around for over 100 years. And uh, I've taken – our family has gone back to see it several times, uh, brought the kids when I was ambassador to see the family village and to see my dad's uncle who still lives in the family home. He's about 96 years old. Mm. And um, uh, just so they really appreciate – how fortunate we are as Americans or even the people in the cities of China, forty uh, percent of the people of China live in villages like this right but when we when we went back to the village even a year ago, um, still cook using wood kindling hmm. in the back, no washing machines, no uh, uh, no clothes washers or anything like that or dryers they still wash by and dry wash by hand and hang it up. Uh, the only modern convenience I saw was a rice cooker uh, plugged into an extension cord that goes who knows where. Um, they, they still use the outhouse. Uh, the pump, the water pumps uh, off to the side of the living room is pretty much rusted, But they, so they use that, uh, that pipe of water that was installed in 1997. Uh, and, uh, you know, the refrigerators that they have in these units are about the size, a little bit bigger than what you see in, in a hotel room or a college dorm, right, which is right. why there's so much spoilage of food in China. Um, but this is how 40% of the people of China still live.
0: My God. I would have expected more progress in that time. I mean, I, I've had that same experience of visiting the ancestral village, and I'm usually really sort of shocked to see how much better things have gotten. But...
1: Yeah, I mean – but. You know, and this family village of ours is just a mile and a half from a city of millions of people, right, a right. modern city of millions of people. But think about it, 40% of the population live like this. Where would China get all the electricity it needs in order to enable the villagers to have, you know, large refrigerators or to have a washing machine or even to have an electric stove? Um, uh, and, or to even have more modern appliances, let alone the electricity to power, you know, the, the new technology industries of today.
0: Uh, let's skip forward. There's so much rich biography that we can get into, um, but I want to move on to your, your years as Secretary of Commerce. Uh, you dealt with a lot of issues that relate to, for example, intellectual property and, of course, with trade. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and whether that was maybe good preparation for you for the time that you would then go on to serve as ambassador?
1: Oh, it was great preparation right. because so much of what we did and and we dealt with as um, ambassador dealt with uh, uh, trade issues, intellectual property, advancing the interest, uh, promoting the interests of American companies and rule of law and, and opening markets uh, in China to not just American companies and American uh, providers and service providers, but also uh, all around the world. Um, as, as Commerce Secretary, we came in at a time in which the economy had bottomed out, uh, uh, the Great Recession uh, inherited that President Obama inherited from the Bush administration, and our job was to try to help the economy, American economy, get back on its feet, uh, putting people back to work. The mm-hmm. Unemployment rates were just sky high. Uh, people were uh, losing jobs, or they're having their hours cut back, uh, losing their benefits. And so we, we at the Commerce Department uh, wanted to help American companies uh, get back on their feet. And one way to do that is to help them sell stuff overseas. We had a motto at the Commerce Department. The more that U.S. companies export, the more they produce. The more they produce, the more workers they need. And that means jobs for the American people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was our, 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 our objective. And China has such incredible needs Um, when I talk about the 40% who live in the villages, um, the people of China very much value uh, American-made products and services. They're they're viewed as high quality. It stands for high quality. It stands for integrity. It stands for purity. Um, And so uh, it was our objective to help introduce more American companies and American products to China to help both the Chinese leaders and the people of China raise the standard of living. Uh, at the same time, we wanted to make sure that uh, U.S. companies that went there had their intellectual property protected, that they'd be able to do more business in China uh, without having their stuff ripped off, uh, or that making sure that they were treated fairly uh, you know, uh, that if a U.S. company was applying for uh, a a license to operate in China, it was unfair that their applications were languishing for two or three years at a time, and the applications of the Chinese companies were being granted within a month or two. Right. Um, Those are the issues that we also dealt with as ambassador. So um, um, we had a lot of trade talks and discussions. Um, You know, the Chinese also wanted access to the American markets, and so we were trying to make sure that um, we could bring in Chinese products um, into the United States, but making sure that American products uh, could go into, uh, into China.
0: The path makes a lot of sense to me now when I consider that here, here, here in Seattle, you're uh, running this state. Boeing is is one of the big exports, of course, our our planes, and then one of the big victims of Chinese intellectual property theft is also here, which is of course Microsoft. And uh, so I imagine you had pretty rich experience, and so I guess you probably weren't all that surprised when Ambassador, when President Obama tapped you as ambassador to China after John Huntsman decided to come back and run.
1: Yeah, that was uh, a little bit of a surprise, though. I mean, we were very, uh, very, very. Uh, Uh, very excited about uh, our work at the Commerce Department. We were tackling all these big, big projects, uh, uh, projects that uh, uh, the uh, congressional watchdogs and inspector generals had flagged as being very troubled projects, projects that President Obama and we at the Commerce Department inherited. Um, We had to take over the... uh, Right after we took office and President Obama took office, we had to work on the um, the 2010 census, which right. was very troubled. And, and the Congressional Budget Office and various uh, agencies said that it was the most troubled technology project facing the Obama administration. That's because Obamacare hadn't rolled out yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was before Obamacare rolled out. And, uh, uh, the, so the, they beat you for the most troubled <laughs> project. Afterwards, <laughs> yes. But uh, um, we had to... Uh, There were people calling for a boycott of the 2010 census uh, on the far left and the far right. Uh, People were not returning uh, mail-back surveys, and so the the census forms that go out, people weren't filling those out uh, over the – many, many decades, you know, just as people don't respond to a survey when they purchase a major appliance, you, did you like the service? How's the product? Uh, you know, uh, feedback on customer care, et cetera. People just don't respond to that anymore. They throw it into the recycling bin. And so um, um we were very concerned that people would not respond to the 2010 census, that we would then have to hire all these people to go door to door, which costs us a lot of money. Uh, and then of course you have immigrant groups who are very fearful of people coming, knocking on their door. Mm. Um, and so uh, it was a, it was a tough issue, um, but we actually brought it in uh, uh, 20% under budget for $2 billion savings. It was the most accurate uh, census in about three or four decades uh, and the, um, the participation rate in mail-back surveys uh, was um, an all-time high. Uh, We had reversed the several-decade trend of people not responding to the mail-back survey. So we we were doing a lot of things at the Commerce Department, um, streamlining things, things that used to take us 17, 18 months to send out money for uh, community development projects, job creation projects. We were able to reduce it down to 17 days, make a decision in 17 days. Patent and trademarks, uh, patents, by the time um, President Obama took office – People, inventors had to wait maybe four or five years to get a patent approved. The industry, the inventors would really like to have that uh, uh, yes or no in about 18 to 20 months. And so we were able to turn that around and even guarantee that people could have a patent decision within one year. Uh, if they really wanted it. And so we were really proud of the way that we were turning around the Commerce Department.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's what you're known for, actually, yeah, is uh, just for you know, reducing the times yep. and things. And uh, streamlining. State of Washington,
1: right. uh, people used to have to stand in line for an hour to renew their driver's license. We got it down to 10 minutes without any new people, new money, <laughs> wow. new systems. And we said, wait a second, we're the home of Microsoft. Why should you even have to stand in line? Right. And so we were, I think, the first to allow people to renew their driver's licenses online. Huh? Um, and you know, uh, you know, just it was a great time as governor. Um, you mentioned you asked about uh, some of the trade issues, Boeing and Microsoft, intellectual property and exports. Um, we uh, we were able to help double Washington State exports to China uh, while I was governor, and uh, and we tried to do the same thing as Commerce Secretary. Uh, President Obama had uh, his national export initiative to double American exports all around the world within about five years, and China was a major target uh, for us Um and uh, so we continued to do that work when I became ambassador. Yeah,
0: and so when you were tapped, uh, I, I you knew you had a lot of this experience to bring to bear, and that it would be relevant to what you were doing. Uh, you you also had the experience of the ticker tape parades when your family went to your your home village and, and that that sort of thing. What were your expectations about what your reception would be as ambassador? Uh, and then how did it in fact play out? I mean, you must have, of, realized that this was momentous, that for a lot of Chinese people, I mean, I talk to, um, my Chinese friends and I ask them if they can name a single former American ambassador to China and, oh, they, they only know one, Lo <laughs> Jiahui. <laughs> and they don't know you by your Chinese name only. Um, but, uh, that's remarkable. So, so, to, to tell me about that. Um, was, was there something that surprised you in terms of the expectations that people had about you? And did you, did you think that this would play into the way you received or your effectiveness as ambassador, your ethnic heritage?
1: Well, I do know from uh, all the diplomats who have served in China and even many of the businesses and trade groups that are located in China that that uh, from them, they say that I had access to more high-level Chinese government officials than any other ambassador. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, before and, and after me. Um, and... Uh, uh, the reception that we received uh, when we got there was just incredible. Um, you know, the press were all over us. Uh, they somehow found out when we were arriving at the airport. We didn't tell anybody. We yeah, came in late that night.
0: Photo of you uh, slapping a backpack and yeah. your own luggage, <laughs> and standing in line to buy your own Starbucks.
1: Yeah, that was taken uh, at the Seattle airport just as we were heading out to China. I was buying some Starbucks uh, for the family and carrying the backpack, uh, my Nike backpack, and and with my daughter next to me. And someone took a picture and somehow went viral, and the Chinese press from that figured out what flight we were on. Um, met us at the airport uh, and saw us at close to midnight coming down the escalator carrying, you know, briefcase, backpack, dog carrier, cat carrier, <laughs> everything. And, and that was so um, unusual for a government official to be loaded down with uh, all those types of uh, of, of luggage and, and personal items. And, uh, and then the fact that we were flying economy class to some major conferences. I mean, that's the rule in, in for the State Department. Right. You, you, you fly domestic uh, when you fly. Well, when you fly, unless it's like 13 or 14 hours, you fly um, economy class. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to go business class, you pay for it out of your own pocket. But uh, um, that that created quite a stir. So we, we were received so warmly uh, by the press, but also primarily by the Chinese people. And that was the great thing about China, Uh, our stint in China, an opportunity for the children to really discover and appreciate the land of their ancestors, to go back to the family village, to see where grandpa and great grandpa uh, were born, and to really understand how 40% of the people of China live and just how fortunate we are to be Americans. Uh, Our standard of living, our clean air, pure, high-quality food, the freedoms, the democracy that we have, uh, it was a great experience for the kids. Uh, so we were received so warmly by the Chinese people and by the government officials. Uh, but um, you know, shortly after our visit, the uh, the Chinese propaganda machine of the government was a little bit concerned that we were getting a little bit too popular, right? And creating a little bit of a contrast to the lifestyle or to the protocols of their government officials, the lavish banquets, the fact that you know. People hold umbrellas for them, carry their luggage, get coffee for them. Uh, so they uh, uh, and, and it was right around the time that Vice President Biden uh, made a visit to China and how he stopped off t- uh, to eat at a noodle shop, right. along with uh, Mona, myself, and and part of our our delegation, our our our, um, our support team. For Vice President Biden, including his uh, and and his granddaughter was with him at the time, and so it was so unusual for such a dignitary like the Vice President of the United States of America, along with the ambassador, to sit down in a noodle shop. And they so pretty soon they some of the editorials that came out said that ambassador that this was all part of an American conspiracy to destabilize the Chinese government, <laughs> and that that everything that I was doing was uh, fake, not real. Uh, and that I should f- quit showboating and focus more on diplomacy. But what was nice is that the comments by the everyday people on 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 the social media was saying, no, Ambassador Locke is being like every American and we should have more of our Chinese officials be like the Americans. Uh, so that created a little bit of tension.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think what's interesting is that, that this was um, – a time when social media was really quite powerful. This is, uh, in the run up to, I mean, that it probably peaked with the Wenzhou train crash and, and all that. But, uh, even, even in the year or so before that, you couldn't go a week without seeing some official in, in, in China brought down for, uh, a display of, of malfeasance that was rooted out by some, you know, keen observer on the internet, right? That was happening constantly. And I think what's interesting is that, that the, the very, Marked contrast between your really warm reception in China and the the sort of ugly, even sometimes quite racist state media send off to you at the end of your tenure. Uh, it reflects, I think, the the exertion of control over social media uh, that happened during those those years. It was really a, a gigantic change. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was. It was somewhat of a contrast, uh, 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 a contradiction. Uh, the Chinese uh, government is very much controlling and watching the social media and censoring it. At the same time, they they monitor it to really understand the moods uh, and the feelings uh, of the Chinese people. Right. Uh, so they're 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 following it to really understand the Chinese people, but also trying to control it. Um, that's so, important to see. You know, Google, point. Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram—all those things are not available to the Chinese. Um, uh, because they saw what happened during the Arab Spring uh, Revolution and right. and, and the, the use or the role that social media played in that, and they're adamant that they're not going to allow social media to be used um, or uh, be part of an instrument of uh, social upheaval or domestic instability ultimately a revolution within China. Right. So um, they- You monitored. arrived
0: in the year of the yeah. Arab Spring. I yeah. Mean, this was just yeah. months after, and your predecessor had been sort of tied to it when you're showing up in Wang Pujing wearing mm-hmm. a bomber jacket and on the day when people were supposed to be strolling. So they were really sensitive to this. this very, very sensitive there, to yeah.
1: that. And so, uh, but nonetheless, I still had more access to uh, more high-level Chinese government officials. And I was, despite the official propaganda trying to cut me down to size- I was still warmly received by all the government officials. And, uh, that's, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, and, and so – but we also use social media to um, – uh, well, if I had appearances, um, sometimes uh, the, the press were instructed that the coverage had to be in the back pages of the newspaper. local newspaper. It could not exceed a certain number of characters. And so we at the embassy would then – uh, promote and publicize our our activities using social media, yeah, and, very effective public yeah.
0: diplomacy back then. I think that was uh well done by the u s embassy and uh, we'll talk about one uh, particular case of that in, in just a little bit, but uh, like I said at the beginning, there were a lot of really uh eventful things that happened during on your watch, as it were, uh just a few months uh into your tenure, I guess it was uh, less than six months in. Uh, the dramatic events of the Wang Lijun incident took place. That was in February of 2012. Uh, we still don't know much about what really happened. Can, can you talk about that? Uh, about what, how you found out about his, his appearance at, at the consulate in Chengdu, what your reaction was, uh, and about all the events leading to the downfall of Boisilai from your perspective there, which must have been fascinating.
1: Well, it was really, uh, nerve wracking, quite frankly. We got the report, uh, uh that, uh, a Chinese uh, government official, police officer, had walked into the uh, consulate in Chengdu in uh, western uh, China, uh, and uh, under pretenses of talking about trade,
0: was he really dressed as a woman?
1: No, no, no. He okay. was. He was. He was in regular clothes. Okay, an so that, no, that's that's a lie. Yeah, <laughs> meeting with our, our our consulate people, talking about some trade issues, and in the middle of the meeting, blurted out that he wanted to. Um, effect and uh, seek uh, political asylum, and uh, in which case, at, at which point, uh, the room was cleared of the Chinese nationals, uh, who uh, are from the local area who work at the consulates, uh, and um, only the American political staff remained, and we were contacted, and then that started almost about two days of uh, very intense, around-the-clock uh, monitoring and and uh, be, me being holed up in a, a very s- secure uh, communications uh, room. Uh, in the embassy. In the embassy uh-huh. uh, and going all through the night uh, in contact with Washington, D.C. and the consulate uh, and with other embassies. So uh, it was a very nerve-wracking, very tense time. I mean, the very way that we we
0: understand it is that, that cops showed up both from Beijing looking to, to take him out to Beijing, and from Chongqing,
1: lies on own guys who wanted to bring him there for sort of rendition Right. This is this is Wang Lijun, Jun was the, the police chief for uh, uh, Chongqing, which is almost like a, a separate state, a yeah, separate yeah, political yeah. A municipal entity. Municipal level. Yeah. And um uh and uh, working under the uh, party secretary uh, of uh, Chongqing, which is equivalent to a state almost. Or like Washington D.C., it's That's a municipality that right. has its own uh, uh, distinct from another state, and with the power of another state, and uh, or province. And uh, um, Wang Li Jun spilled the beans and said that uh, Bo Xilai's wife, and Bo Xilai is the son of a major revolutionary, yeah, boy, a very boy, revered boy, figure in in the Chinese revolutionary history, uh, and he's very urbane and um, had hopes uh, of of becoming the president of China uh, someday. And uh, th- these guys are called the princelings, uh, mm-hmm, the sons mm-hmm. of the, the revolutionary uh, heroes of, of, uh, of communist China. Um, and so uh, he was a very charismatic, very urbane guy and uh, had a lot of success as a party secretary and as a governor of different parts of China. Mm-hmm. And then sent off to Chongqing uh, to be the party secretary. Um which is the equivalent of a governor, but actually outranks the governor oh, yeah, because it's the Communist Party official. That's right. Uh, and uh, uh, but Wang Li Jun, the police chief, was, came to us and said, "Boshi Lai's wife was responsible for the murder of a British citizen."
0: Yeah, Neil Hayward. Uh, right.
1: And. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they, the police department had figured this out and uh, reported that to Boshilai, uh and that's and the police chief's close associates were suddenly disappearing, and fearing for his own safety, he decided that he would uh, uh, come to us and and. Uh, spill the beans and at the same time seek refuge. Uh, but, you know, he this guy, this police chief was somewhat controversial himself yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and accused of some very repressive, if not uh, heinous crimes himself uh, in the name of law and order. And so it's not a person that we would normally want to, uh, you know, bring to the United States. But the point is that what people don't understand is that we couldn't have right you could we, we, we couldn't have granted him political asylum and and uh, let him uh, allow him to defect in any case because how do you get him out of the country how do right. you bring him how do you get him out of china how do you bring him to the united states if you're a a, a, a russian ballet dancer uh, or you're a, a a russian athlete and you want to defect from russia you do that when while you're, you're out, in the states, you do that <laughs> when you're outside out of, of Russia. Right, right, I mean, right. you're you're touring. You know, you're you're in Paris for a, a ballet, and then you run to the U.S. embassy while you're in Paris, and then you say, "Hey, uh, I want political asylum. Uh, I want to defect." Or if you're a Cuban baseball player, you 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 do that while you're touring the world, and you're in another country, and you go to the British embassy in London or or Paris or whatever, mm-hmm. or or the U.S. embassy, and you say, "Hey." I'm, I'm, I, I want to defect and I want political asylum. Because if you're, if you're a Chinese official in China, you come to the U.S. embassy or the consulate, how do we ever get you to the airport? Right, right. You know, we put you in a car, go to the airport, the police will stop us. We put you on an airplane, the police, the Chinese don't have to let you let the plane take off. So you can only do that while you're outside the country. So there was no way that we could have given him uh, political asylum or allow him to defect unless we were going to let him live there uh, for the next several years and, uh, and hope that maybe someday the Chinese would allow him to leave the consulate and fly outside, fly uh, uh, away from China. Um, but, you know, he had an unsavory past to begin with. In any, in any event, Bo Lai sent his police and his military people to surround our consulate right. in Chengdu, which is like the, the the governor of California sending his state patrol to Dude. Pennsylvania to surround uh, some fugitive holed up in another government building. I mean, what authority does the governor of California have to send his state patrol to another state right. to try to arrest someone? Um, so that was a major issue. And – but very scary for our people because they were surrounded by all of these military-type vehicles around our consulate.
0: Right, I can imagine. And
1: anybody coming and going was subject to search uh, and being questioned. So um, you know, it's not like we could have somehow sneaked him out. Did uh,
0: Wang Liqin's story check out in the end?
1: Well, then what happened is that uh, we gave we, we put him in communication with authorities in Beijing. Right. And ultimately what happened is that uh, Beijing uh, sent top security people to our consulate in Chengdu, many, many hours away by flight. And they escorted him out under under basically equivalent to federal marshals, right, federal authorities, and took him back to Beijing and gave him safe conduct to Beijing where he then, uh, under detention... Um, uh, Made all the revelations that ultimately led to the prosecution of both Boshi Lai and his wife,
0: right, and eventually brought down that whole network um, that they were attached to Zhou Yongkang, a couple of corrupt guys
1: in the pla this whole. well those were almost separate incidents in which there was a huge anti corruption uh, uh, effort underway under Xi Jinping, and uh, the uh, high ranking government official who was now the vice president of China, Wang. Um, Wang Shishan. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, uh, that was just an incredible episode, very, very tense over uh, over a several-day period.
0: But it was followed by something almost equally tense just a few months later when the blind, self-taught lawyer and activist Chen Guangcheng uh, escaped from essentially house arrest in his little town in, in Shandong, made his way to Beijing, and then made his way to the U.S. embassy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I've had a chance to talk to Kurt Campbell about this incident. I've had a chance to talk to Jerry Cohen, who was instrumental in bringing him, uh, to NYU initially. Uh, both of them were pretty upfront about uh, how they felt about the way that Chen reacted in, in, in the time afterward. Um, he was not charitable, especially to Kurt, uh, in his account of what had happened. He has, I think a lot of people would agree, has been rather uncharitable to Jerry. Uh, in the aftermath as well. But can you talk about your perspective on on this? Um, Weigh in here on on what happened in Chen Guangcheng's case and uh, how you feel about his telling of that story.
1: Well, Chen Guangcheng was a a noted uh, civil rights um, activist, um, kind of a self-taught A country lawyer uh, helping people on legal issues, exposing corruption and illegal practices, forced abortions in China. And because of that, he incurred the ire or the the wrath of the local government officials, was jailed, uh, imprisoned on trumped up charges. Uh, served his time, so he was not on parole, but actually served his full time and released, went back to the, his family village where he was constantly being harassed and persecuted, including his family and his kids uh, who were, wanted to go to the local school, um, and um, could not leave uh, his village. And uh, so one one night he snuck out. He's blind, blind. Uh, uh, became blind at an early age, uh, but memorized all the routines of the guards, uh, knew their patterns, their habits. And one night, uh, was able to sneak out, uh, somehow climbed over a fence and, and doing so broke his foot, got, uh, ma- managed his way to a nearby farmhouse where the, where he was given refuge using cell phones. He was able to contact his, uh, his, um, uh, uh, civil rights comrades, uh, fellow activists in Beijing who then arranged to come and pick him up, uh, took him to Beijing. By then, his escape had uh, become known to the authorities. They were on the lookout for him, and people were monitoring, I'm sure. Uh, authorities were monitoring all of his known associates and friends. Um, we got a call early in the morning one one day uh, from his associates saying that uh, um Uh, Chen Guangcheng was there in Beijing and um, uh, wanted uh, refuge in the embassy. Uh, We weren't sure if it was legit or not, so we sent someone out uh, who uh, knew what uh, uh, Chen Guangcheng looked like, verified uh, his identity. And um, then we were in contact with the State Department in D.C. on what we should do, what we should do because this was unusual. This is the eve of a major visit. Uh, this was on the eve of a major, uh, about a week out from a uh, a major conference, a yearly conference of high level Chinese and U.S. officials. Uh, we were. Ha- uh, uh, Secretary of Treasurer uh, Tim Geithner was expected, along with uh, National Security Advisors, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, other cabinet officials, um, and uh, meeting with their counterparts uh, in China. And um, the problem with this is that it's one thing if he comes into the embassy. Of course, there are Chinese guards that will check people's identification if they want to come into the embassy. But um, it's one thing if, if a, a Chinese person walks into the embassy and says, I need refuge. Mm-hmm. It's another thing for uh, us to go out and pick him up and bring him in.
0: That's what you did, though.
1: And that's what we did. Uh, ultimately, that's what we did. And there was a high-speed chase. I mean, uh, uh, it was almost like a Mission Impossible chase. Uh, wow. Uh, but ultimately, we were able to uh, get to him.
0: Was it one of the Marine Guards driving or who who? Uh,
1: no, it was a Chinese national driving uh, a big suburban, uh, and there was a, a, a chase in which we were trying to uh, meet up with the uh, the car in which uh, um, uh, Guang Chun was in. but then at at some point the Chinese authorities figured out um, that who which car he was in, and so they were chasing him. I see. And in some ways, we were following the Chinese car, and it was, you know, going through, crossing streets or, or left turns, right turns at high speed, going through red lights and everything else. So it was quite the hairy. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, really, a, almost like a scene out of Mission Impossible. Ultimately, we were able to uh, pick him up uh, and uh, bring him back to the embassy and in a uh, car with diplomatic plates. Then, yes, and then so, right. yes, yes, and uh, then. Uh, we gave him medical attention, and uh, then we he, – but here's an interesting thing. He did not want to come to the United States. That's
0: right. That's
1: He was never seeking to come to the United States. He wanted simply to be able to move his family from that village in that province to a totally different province uh, and to, um, you know, go to the university, get some education, uh, but to basically escape the persecution of the authorities of that village and of that province.
0: And somehow he thought that the U.S. embassy would be his best friend in doing that? Uh, I, that, that seems like an odd choice. He,
1: he wanted to be able to have that freedom of to uh, live in the embassy for a while or to work out of the embassy for a while, and but still be remain in China because he was hoping to be there when democracy uh, would finally come to China. Um, and, of course, we could not let him live in the embassy. I mean, we're not equipped to have a, a person live in the – a foreigner live in the embassy. We don't even have – other than the Marine Guards, none of the personnel live on the embassy grounds.
0: What was Beijing's position during this this, this time? Well, obviously, what?
1: they were very upset and right. hostile and, and uh, uh, demanding the release of, of uh, uh, Chen Guangchun. And so we really felt that uh, this was our responsibility to try to negotiate – uh, his uh, departure from the embassy, but on terms, on his terms.
0: So, who led that negotiation at that point? Was well, that Kurt you?
1: Campbell and I were involved in those negotiations, right. along with some high-ranking lawyers from the uh, from the from Washington D.C. Because mm-hmm. it turns out that Kurt Campbell was on his way uh, to. Uh, uh, for these high-level talks, along with other uh, ranking members of the State Department. So they came out uh, immediately, a little bit early, and were involved in those negotiations.
0: So what else can you tell us about uh, that process? I mean, how did that negotiation get handled? I mean, what made China ultimately back down on that? Couldn't have been an easy thing to to get China to acquiesce to.
1: Oh, it was a very—the t- uh, 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 negotiations and the discussions were very tense, Uh, over many, many days, and at one point um, we really felt that uh, there was no way we could reach an agreement, and so we began to make preparations for having him stay within the embassy. Uh, and well, we that had, wasn't
0: without precedent. In eighty nine, you'd done that for Fang Lizhi. Yes, example.
1: but he was not actually in the embassy. He was actually in the ambassador's residence. I see. And and there was a uh, there's some guest houses in the back of the ambassador's uh, compound, which is m- several miles away yeah, from uh, the embassy right. and uh, Guanghua Lu. Uh, yeah. So he was able to live in what would be appropriate quarters, separated. But uh, where would he stay within the embassy? Uh, the only place that we had uh, of, of for people to live in were for the Marine Guards, which is a very (laughs) secure area. Um, You know, it's one thing to bring people newspapers for connection to the outside world and maybe a telephone, but in the day of the internet and uh, um, smartphones, uh, how how do we make sure that, uh, you know, what's our responsibility to allow him to be connected to the outside world? What about visitors? because he, visitors would be coming through a secured, classified area of the embassy grounds. And so that would be very problematic. So we were, But we were starting to say, okay, we're not going to be able to reach an agreement with the Chinese that was acceptable to uh, Chen Guangchun. Um, and so we were st- starting down the path of how to enable him to be a r- long-term resident of the embassy. And who
0: were you negotiating with? Who was on the other side of this? Was it foreign uh, ministry? Or was it, it
1: was it? with a, a representative of the foreign ministry, and it turns out, uh, uh, well, it was uh, uh, Sui Tenkai, oh who okay. is now no, yeah. the, the Chinese ambassador, ambassador to the uh, to the United States.
0: Well, I mean, it's kind of a good thing then that you had Sui, because he's a reason, I mean, as, as they uh, no, go. Uh, the,
1: these were very tense, uh, very, very tense negotiations, and the Chinese were very angry and very upset. Uh, And so, uh, uh, you know, while we may like uh, dealing with individuals or like their personalities and them individuals as people, um, they have a a role to play. They have a role to play. I mean, they were he was very aggressive, very effective in presenting um, the Chinese position. Uh, it's, it's like defense lawyers and, and prosecutors. You can be friends on the side, but when you're in court, you can be, you know, very hard-fought enemies yeah. and uh, uh, and effectively advocating on uh, for your client's interests. So uh, these were very tough negotiations. In the end, uh, we were able to reach an agreement in which uh, uh, Chen Guangchun would be allowed to leave the village along with his family, not just him, but his entire family. And they would go to a different province. And the government uh, said that uh, he could actually stay at a university and um, uh, receive education, uh, basically free education for himself and his family. Um, And uh, so those were the terms. Uh,
0: uh, And yet he ended up in the U.S.?
1: Uh, But what happened is that uh, then, of course, with his broken foot, he needed some medical attention. Uh, So after he left the embassy, we drove him to the hospital, uh, made sure he was okay, and then uh, gave him lots of cell phones. um, And he started communicating with uh, his uh, friends and colleagues um, in the human rights uh, arena. And uh, the next morning, he had a change of heart. Uh, did not want to stay in China anymore and demanded to, to be allowed to leave China to come to the United States. But at that point, we had no bargaining uh, position because he was already in in a Chinese hospital, uh, not under the control or aus- auspices or protection of the U.S. government anymore. And so um, uh, it was a very, very tough situation.
0: Um, and then that's part of the story that i don't quite understand is how were you able then with no leverage to convince china to let him leave
1: well that uh, when we when he when we took him to the hospital uh, hillary clinton had just arrived uh, had just landed on the air uh, in beijing and so uh, we were able to put him on a telephone call to talk with hillary clinton uh, with translators, of course. And I remember him distinctly saying, oh, thank you so much, uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, I wish I could give you a big kiss. <laughs> uh, and he was very, very thankful for everything that uh, all of us at the embassy and the State Department had been able to do for him to enable him to leave the embassy, stay in China, but in a, in a totally, uh, on a university setting uh, for him and his entire family. But then the phone calls and the change of heart. And And the change of heart. So what happened is that uh, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton did a phenomenal job of continuing to talk with the Chinese government officials, high-ranking government officials, during this major uh, uh, conference, Mm -hmm. uh, a dialogue called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, and convinced the Chinese that, um, you know, if he just stays in China, he'll always be a thorn and a and a critic of China. He'll get more press attention, and that uh, it would be better for U.S. and for China if uh, if you just allowed him to come to the United States. Uh, in the end, the Chinese uh, government issued a statement and said, uh, "Cheng Guangchun, like any other Chinese resident, is free to apply for a visa to uh, leave." Uh, Uh, leave China and visit another country. So that was their code word for basically saying, it's all right. You can go. You can go. Right. And so we arranged uh, with the help of Jerry Cohen and and many others uh, and the great people at NYU, uh, New York University, to enable him to live on the grounds of NYU uh, uh, and to uh, get a tutor uh, and to receive and to take courses, uh, primarily legal courses. Uh, that's the great work of Jerry Cohen, a great uh, uh, civil rights attorney and a, a person who has tried to bring, uh, 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 well, work with the Chinese uh, on improving their legal system and and bringing delegations of judges and lawyers and and law professors to China to help modernize the Chinese legal system. So um, and and uh, Chen Guangcheng had known Jerry Cohen, had had met him before, and uh, revered him, and uh, uh, highly really respected uh, Jerry and looked up to him, and so was so appreciative of Jerry reaching out and and making uh, this stay at NYU possible.
0: It's really unfortunate, though, what happened afterward. Uh, For those of you who want the sort of uglier side of the denouement, you can talk to or you can listen to the show that we did with Jerry uh, a couple years ago now. Where he talks quite a bit about that, um, and you can also listen to the interview that we did with Kurt Campbell. But
1: one one thing I want to say about oh, sure. that whole incident is that I've heard that uh, Cheng Guangchun was very critical of the State Department and uh, and the embassy, uh, but we were always trying to advocate for him, and right. he had the final say on any proposal. Uh, and as I said earlier, at one point, uh, we felt the negotiations were not going well uh, because Chung Guan Chun did not like what the Chinese government had offered. Uh, even though they said it was their final and best offer, he rejected it. And so we were prepared, making preparations for him, Chung Guan Chun, to stay at the embassy. Um, and I remember uh, this that result would have probably derailed the high-level negotiations the SMED, yeah, that were yeah. about to uh, occur, uh, the the strategic and economic dialogue. And I remember several of our uh, colleagues saying, this is America at its finest, where we are putting the interests of this individual and his freedom and his liberty um, above these economic and other uh, political, military talks that we're about to uh, get underway.
0: I think the way a lot of us understand what happened and why he sort of turned on you, uh, was because he fell into the, under the influences of certain political forces in the U S on arriving.
1: Well, once he came to the United States, there were many groups that, uh, offered him, uh, you know, awards for human rights, uh, you know, man of the year, et cetera, et cetera, or being their guest, on- uh, honoree at a banquet. And there are many organizations that, um, uh, wanted him to appear at their major galas uh which would help sell tickets and raise money for their particular causes and um uh, but using him and i think uh, quite frankly he he was used uh, used by many of these organizations for their own uh purposes uh and um, uh, that was unfortunate but uh, NYU Rolled out the red carpet for him, and really, uh, uh, and and did so at great risk uh, to their interests in China because they were seeking to have uh, uh, an NYU approval Shanghai, of a yeah. of a campus in China, and they knew very well. And I remember the president of NYU saying that by us taking him in, we could be jeopardizing uh, our own uh, application for a campus. But uh, the president of NYU said, this is the right thing to do. And if it means we lose our application, uh, we don't get the approval, so be it.
0: Ah, wow. Let's talk a little bit about Xi Jinping. Uh, in the fall of 2012, there was, of course, this major transfer of power, first at the party level that fall and then the following spring at the uh, the state and at the, the PLA levels uh, from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. What can you tell us about the person of Xi Jinping, based on your interactions with and your observations of him. Tell us about, about see the man.
1: Well, I can't say that I really know him all that well, but I've been in many, many meetings in which uh, he uh, was uh, uh, talking with uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton or Vice President Biden um, and other high-ranking government officials. And um in a lot of those meetings, uh, well, for, he's very confident. He's very relaxed. He does not, you know, read from a script, um, and uh, uh, is very self-assured. Mm. Uh, he oftentimes refers to uh, points of history, uh, to things that his dad told him, or or events of China that he personally witnessed, and so it's he, he's grounded in basically the the lessons of his father uh, uh and his own upbringing and his own experiences starting as a county official all the way up through the various ranks uh of the chinese government
0: yeah so one of the things that 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 i think there's a lot of controversy around is i remember not too long ago um the new york times correspondent pulitzer prize winner uh great great writer jane Perlez came to uh, North Carolina, where I live, and gave a talk at the university there in Chapel Hill, my hometown. Uh, she, she talked about how in the years after his, his anointment, everyone sort of knew after 2007 that he was sort of slated to succeed Hu Jintao, that she tried to get a sense of the man by talking to a lot of the, the experts. She talked, she didn't name him by name, but it was obvious he was talking about, uh, former ambassador State Roy and many other China experts who, uh, you, to a man, told her that he was probably going to be a, a pretty, pretty ardent reformer. They suggested that not only was he going to be sort of uh, somebody who would continue in market liberalization, but that he would also probably pursue some sorts of, of political reforms. And she was just sort of dismissive about the way that they all got him wrong. But I, I had another possible take. I said, is it more likely that we got him wrong or that he changed on taking office, that the exigencies of the situation when he assumed office, the, you know, uh, the situation with Bo si Lai, for example, and Zhou Yung Kong, uh, that it caused him to become more paranoid and, uh, feel deeply insecure and really, uh, tighten everything down inst- and, and, and to put off liberalizations. Which, which theory or is there another theory you, do, you, do you subscribe to? Was it him all along who was just a deeply illiberal person?
1: Well, it could be that it's uh, elements of both. Obviously, uh, events always uh, overtake us and change our, our philosophy or our agenda. It may uh, you know steer us in a totally different direction or modify our course. Uh, you're always having to deal with the immediacies of, of crises and the things that are laid before you and as, as opposed to um, uh, and, and may, maybe not often getting back on track to what uh, you had hoped to do. So, um, you know, there's obviously the challenges of, of, uh, of Boshi lie and, of course, the, the advent of the social media and the pressures of social media, To um, uh, yeah, just the expectations of the outside world, and and of course, uh, it's it's one thing to say you want to reform the economy, right? uh, But when you start closing down and and uh, state-owned enterprises, and and trying to consolidate uh, factories and businesses, and you're having to lay off a lot of people, well, that leads to domestic instability. You have all those demonstrations or protests uh about you know from people who are being laid off and you don't want that to spread so so sometimes the the best intentions about economic reform bump up against the political realities
0: Mm -hmm. uh
1: and, and whether you're a government official in china or you're a government official in pennsylvania you know governors and local officials always run uh on a strong economy and benefit from a strong economy, and a bad economy and layoffs and high unemployment uh, is not is not good politics. Whether you're a communist official or a, a Democrat or a Republican,
0: that's right. I want to be respectful for your time, so let me just get you know nice short answers for a, a couple of more questions that I, I really want to talk to you about. One is uh, China's reaction to the pivot to Asia, later rebranded as the rebalancing. Uh, my sense was that, that policy, which r- was rolled out again during your time, you had to sort of try to explain that that new policy. Uh, how did that go for you?
1: Well, uh, that was something that the President Obama initiated as soon as he took office. Uh, and it was viewed with and greeted with a lot of suspicion by the Chinese. They really felt that it was a, an effort by America to contain, to control, to limit China. Uh, but uh, that was not it at all.
0: Right. It was supposed to be primarily an economic rebalancing. Well, no, huh?
1: actually, it was more of an economic, political, uh, uh, strategic rebalancing, because uh, in many ways, uh, America had lessened its role uh, in the Asia Pacific region during the Gulf Wars, mm-hmm. and uh, had uh, this bec- as the Gulf Wars were winding down. What President Obama was trying to say is that we need to r- get back to Asia, right, uh, and uh, get back to the uh, to our previous level of engagement, economic, cultural, political, uh, strategic uh, that we had had before, um, and uh, and in fact, President Obama very much wanted a prosperous China, uh, a China that was partnering with the United States on international issues, whether it's uh, finding a way to uh, uh, halt the proliferation of nuclear weapons in North Korea and Iran, and in fact, under the Obama administration, China, along with the members of the National Security Council of the UN, did reach an agreement, came up with an agreement uh, uh, in uh, stopping the development of nuclear weapons in Iran, Unfortunately, the Trump administration has uh, um, backed out of that deal. Uh, But that was an an instance uh, uh, of demonstrating that we want a prosperous China, a China that is engaged with America and uh, other nations in helping set a world order uh, economically, politically, uh, and uh, strategically. Uh, so uh no it was never meant to contain China or limit right. China.
0: Jeff Bader once said, if we wanted to contain China, you would know it. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was a pretty pretty good line. Um you know, it wasn't all crises, obviously. You had a couple of very significant wins. I mentioned cybersecurity as one of them. Uh but one of them was you streamlined the visa process significantly. This is a kind of signature Gary Locke kind of a move. Uh your you moved the the, the uh process from something that was like three or four months prior to that, just to get a tourist visa to the United States, now down to just a matter of what? Just, um, three to five days. Three to five days. Yeah. It was just amazing. You also laid the groundwork for this terrific 10 year visa, which uh, I am uh, a a beneficiary of. Uh, Tell us about that whole process and, um, in a nutshell and, and maybe some of the other accomplishments of your, of your tenure in, in office there.
1: Well, uh, Even when I was Commerce Secretary, uh, we were trying to encourage uh, more Chinese businesses to come to the United States to buy American products, uh, to visit that American factory, to place an order with that American company. Again, the more that American companies export – Uh, The more jobs jobs that they create for the American people. And we heard stories about how Chinese uh, companies and Chinese business people were having to wait three or four months just to get an appointment for a visa
0: interview. Oh, Christ. Because you
1: have to have a visa from China uh, or have a visa issued by the United States if you're coming from China, whether it's for – Study whether it's uh, to go to Disneyland or to visit that factory in Ohio. And if a Chinese business person has to wait three or four months just for an interview without any guarantee you even get the visa to come to the United States, that business person is going to say, screw it. I don't have to buy from American factory. I can buy from a German factory, Canadian factory, and uh, I'll go to Germany instead. So we said, guys, this is costing us jobs in America. we got to streamline this. Um, and when I, was at the, when I was at the Commerce Department, people at the State Department says, oh, get butt out, Locke. You, know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, you're commerce. We're state. So then when I became ambassador, I said, well, hey, guys, I'm technically part of state. You can't tell me to butt out. <laughs> so I, uh, one of the first things I, I, I talked about when I arrived in, in Beijing was, hey, we got to streamline this, guys. And everybody fought me. They said, there's no way. We need more money for overtime or we need more people. And if we have more uh, interviews, uh, faster interviews, we need more interview windows, which are all high-tech, and they cost several hundred thousand dollars each. I said, well, we're not going to get the money. So how'd you do it? So I said, we just got to re-engineer the whole thing. And they said, impossible. Well, within a month and a half... Uh, thanks to a a couple of mid-level managers who also were embarrassed about how long it was taking. Um, We got it down to five days, and then two months later, we got it down to three days without any new money, without any new people, without any new interview windows or systems. We just completely reinvented, (coughs) reexamined the whole process. And I said, you got to involve also the Chinese nationals. One-third of the embassy is American personnel. Two-thirds, the support staff and everything else, are local Chinese people. And I said... A lot of these people have worked on the visa lines in the back offices for many, many, many years. They probably have experienced and have witnessed some things that make absolutely no sense to them. So involve them in the, in the, in the process engineering uh, uh, of, of this effort as well.
0: Ambassador Locke, uh, what a pleasure to finally have you on the program. Um, Let's move on quickly to the recommendations section of the show now. First, I do want to remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the network, the best way you can show your support is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. Uh, I also want to uh, draw your attention very quickly to a feature on the site called Signal. We do these explainers and, and trackers on issues uh, like the Democratic candidates in, in the campaign so far and what they've said on China policy or on the high-speed rail network or on WeChat or horrific social engineering project in Xinjiang right now. Uh, check it out at signal.subchina.com. Let's move on to recommendations. Um, Ambassador Locke, I hope you have a, a good book or a movie or something you can recommend for our listeners really
1: quickly. Well, I just happened to see, uh, this past weekend, uh, the movie, uh, Knives Out. Oh yeah, it's, I've heard it's it. Great. It is really, a fascinating. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great, uh, a great movie, and and Daniel Craig uh, does a fantastic job. Uh, and uh, he's a all the convincing characters.
0: Southern accent.
1: Yeah, he he, you know, from from a James Bond British accent. I mean, he's he's a, he's a Brit uh, by uh, by birth, and and so uh, uh, for him to have a Southern accent was just kind of whoa. It's <laughs> hard, 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 to, hard, to, hard to accept, but he did it very, very well. And it's, it's, almost, it's a really great murder mystery. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. in
0: the old tradition of sort of Agatha Christie and, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, my daughter wanted to, to go see it. And so I said, okay, let's go see it. So uh, we did that over the Thanksgiving weekend. It's great.
0: Terrific. Thank you very but much. But I also
1: want to see um, Parasite.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. The cream, I have not had a chance
1: movie. to see it yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. So yeah,
0: I've heard really good things.
1: It's up for uh, probably – it's up people suspect it's up for a lot of academy awards.
0: That's amazing what Korea is putting out these days. Uh, my recommendation is a website, uh, which is called reading the China dream, uh, which is devoted to the subject of intellectual life in contemporary China. I'm reading from their own description, more particularly to the writing of establishment intellectuals. So um this is a, th- a thing that I've complained about for a long time. And, uh, Jude Blanchette once asked me, and I thought it was a great question. Who is the David Brooks of China? Who is sort of like somebody who, who you want to get to understand the sort of centrist, the, the, the kind of middle of the road thinking, uh, coming out of the Chinese establishment anyway. Uh, this may be your answer. www.readingthechinadream.com. Check it out. It's very, very good. Um, thanks once again for, for taking the time. Uh, and I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure just reminiscing about so many of the um, events leading up to our ambassadorship in China. Uh, Again, let me just say that uh, um, it was a great opportunity for us. I'm proud uh, to have served America in a variety of different capacities, uh, state legislator, um, county executive, governor, secretary of commerce, and U.S. ambassador. You know, my dad was very, very proud of all of those positions. Um, unfortunately, he passed away before I was named ambassador. But I think that that would have made him the most proud uh, to see his son returning to the land of his birth, uh, representing the U.S. government uh, as U.S. ambassador to China.
0: Well, I hope you're not done with with public life. Uh,
1: I, well, I, I – uh, I'm still trying to figure out what I do when I grow up or what I will be (laughs) when I grow up and uh, love public policy. Uh, But I think that uh, China, the U.S.-China relationship is at a very critical, um, uh, you know, very critical time right now. And I'm very worried about uh, that U.S.-China relationship and just some of the rhetoric coming out of Washington, D.C., that all things China— are suspect and all things Chinese are suspect. And I'm concerned that it's spilling over into, you know, not just anti China trade economic policies, anti China technology. That's right. But anti Chinese Americans as well. And um, it's important to our that our policymakers understand that whatever differences we have with the government of China and the behavior of the Chinese government that we cannot say, we cannot let that spill over into how America treats its Chinese American citizens and residents.
0: Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at subchina news. And make sure to check out our other podcasts. There's the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, which comes out every week. The Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk. Our two shows focused on women, New Voices and Taffer Talk. The Middle Earth podcast, which is all about the culture industry in China. And of course, our brand new family member, Strangers in China.